there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome back to another episode of T for C. If you're interested in working in media or communications and you have an insatiable curiosity about, well, about just everything, <laughs> this is the episode for you. Because my next guest is a speaker development curator at the world-renowned TED, which stands for Technology, Entertainment, and Design. It's a nonprofit devoted to spreading ideas that are usually in the form of short powerful talks around 18 minutes or less. But before I introduce you to Chloe Shasha, I want to make sure that you've signed up for the Java Junkies Journal. That's time for Coffee's weekly newsletter that comes out on Mondays and gives you an exclusive window into the episodes and the professions that we're going to be featuring all that week. Just head over to the Time for Coffee website at time the number four coffee.org and the sign up box is right there. Now, my Java lovers, please grab your mug and take a chug of your favorite caffeinated brew because it's time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest is Chloe Shasha, TED's speaker development curator, who is responsible for finding amazing speakers for the TED stage for video and podcast programs. Chloe also oversees TED's pool of speaker nominations that come in from all over the world. And she curates them with an international focus on culture, social justice, literature, and humor. Chloe then works with the speakers themselves to help develop and write their talks, diving deep into their research to better help them communicate their ideas with impact. Among the various speakers that she's worked with include the co-founder of Airbnb, Joe Gebby, Monica Lewinsky, and the president of the World Bank. She also hosts sessions and conducts interviews. As a queer Arab Jew, Chloe seeks to bring out our shared humanity among cultural, political, and ideological differences. She cares deeply about providing a platform for ideas from marginalized voices and is passionate about writing, about dance, music, the outdoors, family time, and building queer community. Chloe's background is in journalism and cognitive Cognitive psychology, and she's contributed articles to ABC News and the Huff Post. Chloe, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Thank you, Andrea. Yes, I am. Awesome. Well, I want our listeners to know that based on the introduction I just read, I don't think that our listeners are going to be surprised when I say that you are a pretty unique person. <laughs> <laughs> and you are someone who I believe very much marches to your own drummer. Is that fair to say? I mean, I, I think that's true of almost everybody. <laughs> yes. Well, I think that's an, probably a very generous thing to say, but I actually feel that there are so many people who end up kind of gravitating towards things that are safer or who perhaps even live their lives that way. But as I started digging more into your postgrad journey, Chloe, 
I wasn't struck as much by your personal evolution, which actually has involved coming out as a proud member of the queer community, as by your professional one. And by the way, happy Pride Month. We're doing this interview in (laughs) mid-June. Yeah. And actually, it's a super exciting day because it is the day after a landmark ruling by the Supreme Court, which found that the 1964 civil rights law protects queer workers, protects LGBTQ workers from discrimination, which is huge. It is huge. It's just like in the midst of the pandemic, in the midst of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations that are filling the streets in cities all across the country, we finally actually have something to celebrate. Yeah. And and of course, so much more work to do, but that was a surprising win. Definitely. And more to the point of what I was saying about how you are really unique, it's because in my case of having now interviewed hundreds of professionals, I would say like 99.8% of them, Chloe, have zigged and zagged post-grad. Whereas since you graduated in 2011, you have actually put down roots at one company. Yeah. Crazy, right? It's a funny thing to be a rare millennial in that way, because it's almost like associated with the millennial generation to move around. But then I guess it makes me look more like a Gen Xer (laughs) to have been at one place. Yeah. But I would say, but it really is because of, the ways I've been able to grow there. And I think if that hadn't been the case, I too would have zigged and zagged. So before we get into what drew you to TED and how you have grown over the nine plus years you've been there, could you give our listeners just a really quick primer on what TED is and what it does and maybe how it's been affected by the coronavirus? Yeah, I mean, so the way that we work is we are constantly looking for ideas worth spreading, which is kind of our tagline, and putting people's ideas out there in the form of talks that we film on stages, in podcast interviews or podcast episodes that dive deep into someone's world, direct-to-camera video series around a theme, like around design or around the way we work. And we also have fellowship programs for people. So there's a big component of mentorship that is involved with many of our participants in the community, like our TED fellows who come in and get to learn from each other and then give short talks. We also have the TEDx program, which is enormous. There's 10 TEDx events a day worldwide, which are independently organized TED events by anyone. You can organize one if you apply for a license and follow the guidelines and bring your own program. And then Of course, everything I just said involves a a big component of in-person engagement, which has been completely eliminated from our workflow since the pandemic. And so we've had to pivot to fully virtual experiences. And some of the things that we were already doing weren't deeply affected, like our podcasts. But then our main conference, which is our main source of revenue, we have turned into an online experience. And so that is what we've been working on for the last three months. And I'm guessing that that was one of the main sources of revenue for TED. 
Yes, it was. So that's yeah, that really hard. Conferences. It is hard, yeah. So your current title, which is so awesome, is Speaker Development Curator. And when I first read that, Chloe, what came to mind was more like somebody working in a museum. Mm-hmm. Somebody who's curating, in your case, speakers and and topics. What is a speaker development curator and what do you do in that role? Yeah, I mean, so the word curator, it's true. I definitely associated that with museums prior to working at TED, but the way we use it is we are the ones who bring the speakers to TED. So in the same way that a museum curator identifies art to feature artists to give a platform to, we're looking for people to give a platform to for their ideas. So my job involves both my own research into a a variety of fields that kind of sit between the fields of our specialist curators who are in science, design, technology, business, and current affairs. So I kind of weave between those. And then I also go through our speaker nomination database with some intern support and they pitch the best of those to me so that I can level up the best of those to pitch for our programs as well. Okay. How many speaker development curators are there at TED? It's just me because I'm sort of the one that kind of is weaving between everyone else. And then, you know, there's people who who help me out, but but I'm the only one with that title. Wow, that's pretty cool. So how many curators, I guess, in those special silos there are there? Uh, Let's see. So I guess science, design, business, tech, current affairs. So five specialists. Then there's me. And then there's a global curator who's based in in Switzerland. So he kind of focuses more on ideas from other parts of the world, although all of us are doing that too. But he he has kind of a, a connection in the political sphere and geopolitical ideas. And then we have two or three others who typically contribute ideas from their years of experience. They're both longtime journalists who work in other areas of our team, but will pitch occasionally as well. So I guess, give or take 10 to 12 people are contributing to this. And as we discussed in the Espresso Shots episode, and just check out show notes to see if that's dropped as yet. And that, of course, is focused on how to break into the media and communication space as it applies to TED. Chloe mentioned that there are probably about 90 speakers who will take the TED stage, the big stage, in a year, and that's usually during that spring conference. That's a lot of responsibility for you, Chloe, to be the the kind of gatekeeper as to who has that opportunity to take the stage. Well, it's certainly not me alone. And we are pitching to the head of curation and the head of the company when we are pitching our ideas. And sometimes other people are involved in those pitch meetings as well. But we are sort of, yeah, I guess the first the first gate. And then we, we keep leveling it up. And I think view that responsibility as one to take seriously in the sense that it really matters if we bring out people who don't typically have these opportunities, which is why, as you read from my bio, thank you, that I I care deeply about bringing out marginalized voices to the stage. So 
as I also mentioned in the introduction, you have curated talks with all kinds of people from Monica Lewinsky, that's the intern who had the affair with then-President Bill Clinton, to the president of the World Bank, Jim Young Kim, at least he was the president of the World Bank at the time, to the co-founder of Airbnb. Do you have a favorite TED speaker that you have curated? And could you take us inside what's involved with selecting speakers and then helping them prepare for their talks to make them as good as they can be? So actually, in the case of those three people, those are actually all people that I worked with but didn't invite myself. But in other cases, I both invite and work with the speakers. And so I would say the person that I've I've most enjoyed working with recently is Jad Abumrad, who is the host of Radiolab and also Dolly Parton's America, which many people have recently heard. And he is just such a delightful speaker and writer because of what he does as a host himself. And he's someone who I wouldn't necessarily need to work with to such a great extent as compared with other people who have less public speaking experience. But even so, it is really different to do a TED Talk from other things that people who are used to public speaking do. So we had a you know a workflow where he came up with his talk idea through conversations. And I mean, he already had a sense of what he wanted to talk about, which was the search for truth through journalism and how difficult that is now. And then he wrote drafts and he and I would have calls to go back and forth and talk about different parts of his drafts and give him feedback. And then he would, we'd have other calls where he actually rehearsed the newer versions. Then he started bringing in visuals and he had an animator who helped him and he had graphic design support from other people. And then he rehearsed again. And then I would look at a draft in writing and send the feedback over email. So it's kind of a combo of all those things, calls, video, email, writing, editing. And then what happened with him, which was so interesting is that, you know, he was part of this TED 2020 conference, but then we had to pivot to a virtual one. So in the last month before we filmed his talk, we had to figure out how to make his talk work for a direct-to-camera opportunity when we couldn't necessarily bring a whole film crew to him because of the virus. And this was true for all of our speakers, but he's one that I can speak to personally. And he collaborated with this filmmaker who has worked with us before, named Mac Primo, who basically lived near him and they had a social distance filming opportunity in a warehouse that they did. And I worked with them over video to basically direct it with Mac so that I could watch through Skype essentially (laughs) while he set up the computer and set up the props. And he made beautiful props that worked really well for Jad's talk. And then between the two of them and between my faraway input, it was this amazing co-creation that, of course, I give the most credit to Jad to because he's just such an, an amazing writer that came out in a, in a way that I actually think was potentially stronger than it could have been had it been on the stage because of, of what we were able to innovate at the video editing level. So that was a pretty cool but intense, rushed experience. And we've had to do that with many speakers this year. I'm about to do it again with a couple more next week. And so it's just, it's been interesting. And I think the way that we work together really varies on the person and how they like to work and what's helpful to them. And, you know, some people don't want that much support. 
and that's fine. It's kind of up to them whether or not they want to put in the work. And as long as they're following what we had discussed in terms of the main idea, we will let them not do a ton of drafts with us because it's their talk. But what we can offer to people, and for me, as I'm typically on the younger side compared with some of our more experienced speakers, I'm saying, look, I'm not certainly not an expert in your field, but what I can do is reflect to you how our audience might react to different parts of your talk and help you communicate these things better, even though I don't know a ton about astrophysics at all, you know, or <laughs> whatever the topic may be. So that's, that's what I think we can offer. And for me as a generalist curator, I really am listening for, for the ear of what the general audience would respond to and try to help them reach that ear better. What do you think are the ingredients that go into developing the kind of TED Talk that really resonates with the ears of your audience and end up going viral? actually reluctant to say there's like a formula because I think it does so dramatically vary person to person. But what I will say is that substance matters so much and that delivery, of course, matters too. And people can be highly substantive and have a terrible delivery and then the talk falls flat. But delivery alone is not enough. And it can be enough in the moment in a room where people are excited by the motivational energy and the inspiration that someone is exuding. But then in a month, if someone asks that listener, what was that person's talk about? They won't know because there was nothing really there. So to me, making sure that at the core of the talk is a solid idea is what we are all after. We're all trying to make sure that the talk leaves people with insight. And the way that people get there, to me, is what doesn't have a formula, because it just so depends. Some people need to integrate personal story into the talk for it to really be robust. Some people really don't. And in some cases, adding personal story to certain kinds of talks feels manipulative and weird and off-putting. So it's so much about the topic and the context. But getting down to leaving people with insight is, is the goal. In our Espresso Shots interview, Chloe, you talked about how with interns who work with you over the course of a year and certainly your team of specialists, there's a fair amount of research that goes into just even identifying the right speakers. How important is data and research for a speaker in terms of how they communicate that idea. Yeah, it's definitely important. I think specific examples are what we want our speakers to share, even if it's not necessarily quantitative data, but I think specificity is king. And so it can be tempting to want to get really general and broad because these talks are short as compared with, say, a keynote speech at another forum. So people think, okay, I have to touch on all the things I've worked on and give a very general abstract of what my work is when really going deep and sharing some data and sharing some specific incidences make it more memorable and more relatable. So that is what we're, what we're always encouraging and helping people to draw out. What do you think you've learned over the years, Chloe, about how to give a really dynamic presentation whether on the TED stage or off the TED stage? 
Yeah, I think I think one of the things that that matters a lot is using images thoughtfully. And so in the sense that having a ton of images can detract from the speaker and having none can sometimes work if the person is it's really like an intimate thing where we want to hear and look at the person the whole time. But the balance, if someone has the opportunity for images and can use them, is a delicate one to strike. And I think what I've seen is having images come in at the right moment can make such a huge difference. And so we we really invest a lot in that on the stage. So at our flagship conference in Vancouver, we have this pretty incredible setup that's all custom designed for this conference with three screens that almost are like a, the top of, is it a parallelogram? I forget what the shape is. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> the, the top of, like basically like the top of a stop sign, right? So they're like angled, the, the top three mm-hmm. pieces of a, of a stop sign. And then the audience is kind of in a semicircle layered behind that. And the images when designed for that scale can be just so breathtaking. We had one of my favorite talks from last year was this woman named S. Devlin, who is a stage design, basically a stage designer and artist, and she's done incredible setups. And using the images from those stages behind her was just incredible. So I think that the power of imagery is something that I've really leaned into in my time at TED. And then the other thing is making sure that when information is shared that is complex to take away as much jargon as possible because industry jargon is tempting to share for people in the sense that they're rewarded for it within their own industry because it is a an indication of expertise and experience and intelligence often but it's so alienating for a general audience and ends up just making people tune out so we really try and help people take out jargon and replace it with friendly language that still communicates the same thing. Like it rarely is is the jargon needed for the idea to come across. Yeah. So you're kind of like a translator. Sure. Yeah. I think that (laughs) can be true. (laughs) Could you take us into a typical day, Chloe, as a speaker development curator? If we were a fly on the wall in your apartment right now, what would we be seeing you doing, hearing you do? I'm guessing you have an awful lot of calls. Yeah, well, certainly in pandemic times, since we're all working from home, we actually have a team check-in every morning, which is really quite lovely. So at 9.45 a.m., we all meet up. There's about 22 of us on the curation team doing our various different jobs. And we all check in and just see how we're doing and talk about current events and all the terrible and scary things happening and, and how we can contribute and talk about that. And and then we go into our day and I work from 10 to 6 on average. I mean, that's our official work day at TED. And yeah, I have a lot of calls with potential speakers. I have a lot of calls with actual speakers who are already confirmed who are working on their talks. I have internal meetings with people to talk about production of the talks that we're working on. For example, with the talk I was talking about earlier, Jad Abumrad, figuring out how we're going to film it, how we're going to edit it, what the timeline will be. So there's there's definitely moments like that where we have to discuss process. And then we have meetings to talk about strategy for the future of our curating and the future of our programs and 
those are scattered throughout the week. So I also have been better at carving out time for myself lately to really spend time reading and editing scripts from speakers and also researching to find new people. So that that has been really helpful in this time without the commute to actually have more time to do that. And then my interns every week pitch the best of the speaker nomination database that they have found in that previous week. And we discuss those, we watch the videos, clips that they found of them and the read some articles and then I keep them on an ongoing list of people to pitch for the future. Cool. So we've already alluded to the fact that you have pretty much spent the entirety of your post-grad professional life at TED. What has kept you so captivated over the last nine years that you've spent there? Yeah, I mean, so I, I did at the beginning when I started TED, I was a contractor. So I did actually do a couple other things and came back to TED. Like I had a little stint on the TEDx team at TED, and then I helped launch this startup in Colorado for a summer, and then came back to the curation team. So there were like a few other experiences that I had, but definitely if, if this is an analogy of of dating someone, this has been my long-term relationship, and the other ones were flings. Right. So, And I think what has kept me here is that in some ways – I think that the opportunity to learn about people's lives and learn what they do at at such a level that I could actually see the specifics that would make their talk strong and then use my own love of writing and editing to actually help them communicate that is just, I feel like I can never be fully an expert at that. Like there's just so much to learn constantly to do that better and better. And I mean, I definitely have accepted that technically I am an expert because I've been doing this for a long time, but I still feel that I have so much to learn. And that drive for me has kept me here as well as the people, because I just, I have a lot of several people who have been incredible mentors to me over my time at TED and who are friends as well, but really have helped me shape my growth and supported me in my interests and You know, I've also had a lot of challenging times at TED where I felt like I was hitting a wall or was thwarted in some way and I had to figure out how to sort of redefine my job and had to negotiate with people. And so I think there were moments when I thought I might leave, but ultimately I have found an opportunity to continue growing and and that has kept me there. What do you think are the upsides? of staying put in one organization, of staying within a single company? So I've been thinking about this a lot recently because in some ways, being at a place for a long time has downsides in the sense that you can't necessarily see what needs to change. But on the flip side of that, this is the opposite of what you just asked, which is that the the downsides are that it's easy to get attached to things that were that way before. So, well, that's how it was, right? And it's like, well, we need to change it. And so adapting to change can be more shocking, and then we just do it eventually. Whereas people who come in fresh can often offer, why are you doing that that way? That isn't necessary, right? And then suddenly something is made more efficient. Mm-hmm. So that is something that I really value of, of all the people who have joined over the years who have helped change the way that we do things. But what I feel really grateful for in terms of my time 
there is that it feels like with every year that I've gained more experience there, I spend less time trying to navigate the distractions because I'm less distracted, right? Like I'm very rooted there. So I'm able to actually focus quite deeply on the work I'm doing because I already understand a lot of the other things that can get in the way, right? Like, oh, how do I talk to that team? It's like, well, I know how to talk to that team. So that's fine. So I'll do that when I need to. I guess like some of the social and logistical barriers that can be stressful are, are less stressful to me than they might be for someone brand new. And then I also have these deeply rooted relationships with colleagues who have been there a long time as well and newer ones. And then you build trust. And I think having the trust that I feel for many people within the org is just, it's really a blessing. And, and it, it allows me to actually reach farther and do more. Yes. And I would imagine, Chloe, that it would also be incredibly empowering and that you might feel more confident to push yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah, I think that's true in some ways. And I think in other ways, like I was saying earlier, because I I have unconscious attachments to things that have just have been the way they have been, I don't always think about how to stretch outside of the way that things are. And so that that is like a, a constant balance to strike and, and a push-pull dynamic that I navigate. Absolutely. And there is a wonderful story that one of your best friends from Middlebury shared in an online article about you that I read. And in it, she recounts how you founded TEDx at Middlebury in 2010 and produced the first live stream TEDx at Middlebury. And I think this is a great example of how when you follow your interests and when you listen to your heart, your brain, sometimes serendipity happens. Mm -hmm. And you ended up getting an all expenses paid trip out of that because a Middlebury grad from even before when I went there in 75, happened to hear that first live stream TEDx at Middlebury, actually when he was in some foreign country. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And he reached out to you. Yeah. I mean, he he was involved before that too. Like he was a supporter of other extracurricular Middlebury programs and was aware of this TEDx Middlebury event happening. And so, you know, he was loosely tied to the event throughout the process, but he really changed my life by inviting me to go to that conference. And he wasn't at that one. He was in a different one. So I, I went, went there all on my own as a college senior in the spring. And that is where I met the woman who ended up hiring me at TED after I interviewed a few months later. Unbelievable. And 10 years on, TEDx Middlebury is still thriving. And there's actually a shout out to you on the TEDx Middlebury website. There Uh, is? I don't even know that. (laughs) Yes. It talks about how Chloe Shasha founded TEDx in 2010. Wow, that's very sweet of them. I uh, I will tell them you can take that down since (laughs) it has grown so much since then and become such a better program. Very sweet. Well, I I think that is so cool to think 
that while you were in college, you started something so powerful that is still not just there, but as you said, thriving and has grown so much since you started it. What do you think the takeaway is for our young listeners, Chloe? Well, I do think that there is, like you said earlier, a combination of serendipity and ambition involved in so many parts of our journey. And there is, I think there are definitely moments when we put a lot of effort into things and it doesn't become fruitful and it's very disappointing. But that ultimately, just because that pattern happens a few times, that it doesn't mean it will continue to happen and that getting that same energy up for other things, it really is about what we put in in terms of what we get out of it and that creating opportunities when there's a space for it by asking if something can be supported or asking if you can start something or applying for resources to do the thing if you're still in school and can apply for grants. Like all those things add up. And I do think that they snowball into opportunities later if you're open to them and if timing works out, which is the serendipity part. And if you know you show your credentials that, that allow you to try out those new opportunities. Love that. You've alluded, Chloe, to the fact that it hasn't always been like super smooth sailing for you at TED, that there have been challenges. And I think that's supernatural for Mm -hmm. everyone in their jobs. I mean, you grow, you hit road bumps, you may hit a roadblock even. Mm -hmm. I try to ask all of my guests, Chloe, to share a time in their professional lives when they struggled as a way to really empower our young listeners and comfort them to Mm -hmm. know that even someone who is at a company like TED, at a position with so much seniority as you have right now, you have still had times when you struggled. So could you share a story with us around a time when it wasn't super easy. Maybe you even experienced the imposter syndrome, which is really common among type A women. Mm -hmm. But most importantly, how you persevere and a lesson that you may have learned in the process. Well, there's so many moments, honestly, it's hard for me to think of which one to tell as a coherent story. But I will say that The first time that I curated a program completely on my own was this program that was a salon event. So not a super long one, but seven or eight speakers in our TED office theater. And I felt I'd been curating for years already, but always with the team and with a second reader. We have a whole system. We have a first and second reader for each talk. And for this one, it was one of those projects that kind of was like, oh, yeah, Chloe, why don't you take this on? And you'll you'll be fine. You'll do it. And the truth is, I wasn't fine. Like I needed support. I needed second readers, as we now have for everything. And we just hadn't thought the process all the way through before I started. And then I had brought the speakers to a place that felt good but not great. And I realized suddenly in a panic that there just wasn't enough time to make them great. Like I needed more perspective on them. I was too close to the talks. I had 
spend too much time with these speakers sort of affirming the things they really wanted to include in there and contributing my offerings, but still needing like a, a third party lens on it. And I didn't ask for help early enough. I just didn't think that I could. It seemed like everyone was too busy and we were also busy, but what I do reflects what we all do. So I should have asked for help. And then some colleagues of mine got involved and it was like a come to Jesus moment where my boss was like, look, these are not ready. And I was like, I know. I just, I haven't been able to get support. Like I just didn't know I could ask. And she's like, you should have asked. But she also said, but I should have helped you. I should have offered it. And for about, I don't know, maybe 10 days, I was like on a rapid fire editing spree with all of these people getting support from a couple of other readers and transforming these talks in time for when they would come on to the stage. And it worked out, but it was incredibly stressful. Like I just, I felt like I had failed. Like I had both not gotten the support I needed, but also was too cowardly to ask for it and that I was going to represent our team badly and that I hadn't done my job correctly. And really it was just learning how to say when you need things moment, as well as growing. Like I needed, I kind of needed that experience to know when I hit like the edge of my own ability to improve something and need another perspective. Cause it's just really hard when you build relationships with people and get close to their content to continue to see how they need to be edited. That was a big turning point for me. Thank you so much for sharing that. I can tell you, oh my gosh, so many stories, Chloe. The biggest one would be when I came back from being a foreign correspondent in Asia and was promoted to be the State Department correspondent for CNN. And I never asked for help. I never said I didn't know what I was doing Mm -hmm. when I had no clue. And I was way in over my head. And my fear was if I admitted I didn't know something that somehow or another people would be surprised and then might think less of me as opposed to it being like almost an open secret. And I feel like I was the one in my case who dropped the ball because I was afraid to let down my mask. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So thank you so much for sharing that. Final T for C question. If you could go back to Middlebury and do it all over again, but based on the wisdom you have now, what advice would you give yourself? It's so funny about this because I've been actually thinking about this and talking about this a lot recently because I do have some regrets about how I was too fearful to take certain courses. And I really regret that I didn't ever take a philosophy or a religion class. And I think I didn't take them because I felt like, oh, they're going to be, I have to read so much and I'm going to have to write such long papers. And I already have papers and readings to do for other classes. Like I'll take other things that don't require such deep reading on top of what I'm already doing. And it's exactly those fields that I wish I had more knowledge in, just because they provide such a good foundation for, I think, common sense and give context. Like mm. Religion is such a context for so much of what's happening in the world and also goes so deep into history, which is so important for everyone to understand. I basically feel like I didn't take 
courses in my particular case that intimidated me because I didn't want to get bad grades. And that's something I regret because I just think that matters so much less than what I actually took away from my classes. Easy to say now, in the position I'm in, that grades don't matter as much as I thought. And, and it could be not true for everybody. Like some people applying to graduate school, their GPA does really matter. But like, I just wish I had been willing to accept some lower grades in exchange for really going deep into something that I was not familiar with. So that that is probably my biggest academic regret. And then socially, I think I wish I had, or just outside of classes, I, I feel really great about how many things I tried. And I, I would do that again. Like I did so many extracurricular things and I built beautiful friendships. But I also wish I had just spent more time with kids from other countries. And we had such an, an amazing international student body. And I just didn't really end up connecting with that many kids from other countries, even though I myself grew up partly in France and, you know, there were other French speakers on campus and I just kind of stayed in a very American sphere. So I think that would have been a cool thing for me to expand my horizons a bit and learn more from other people. Oh yeah. What great advice. Chloe, I want to thank you so much for making time for coffee today with me and the T4C community. Of what course. you do is so interesting, and I can totally see why you have been someone who has been more content. And I don't mean it in a sense of like lowering your standards or not being ambitious or anything like that, but how interesting your company at TED is and why you would be so challenged there and feel like you're growing. And just really thank you so much for being so candid and sharing so much about your experiences there. Well, thanks so much, Andrea. Really appreciate it. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee. 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.